0: When I discerned, I was meant to teach more. I went in search of knowing Christ and Him crucified. God from eternity doesn't clutch the divinity to Himself, but communicates it such that He begets a consubstantial Son. Begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, because the Father gives His divinity away to the Son, and that we're created only to be deified.
1: In the image and likeness.
0: Exactly. This is what fatherhood looks like. How do I express all my power, all my aspirations? (sighs) You give it all. You're called on a path towards sacrifice. And the power that you know, the strength that you're called to exhibit, it's the power of love and sacrificial love.
1: Hello, I'm Jeff Cavins. I want to welcome you to the Bible Timeline Show. On this episode today, we're going to be looking at the patriarchs. That is the burgundy color on your Bible timeline chart, or if you have a Great Adventure Bible, that's the burgundy tabs on the edges of the page. And when we talk about the patriarchs, uh, this is the period where we're introduced to uh, four of the great leaders in salvation history, starting with Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham and his wife Sarai, And her name's gonna be changed to Sarah. Then we're gonna be looking at Isaac and then Jacob. And we always include Joseph and uh, the brothers there as patriarchs in the story is that tremendous story of Joseph going down into Egypt. Today, we're gonna look at one of the most iconic stories in the entire Bible, and that is the sacrifice of Isaac. As Abraham is going to be told by God to go to Moriah, Mount Moriah, and sacrifice his son, You know it doesn't happen, but why? My guest today is going to be Dr. Margaret Turek. I think you're going to be blessed by all that she has to say. She wrote a tremendous book called Atonement, Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology. Ignatius Press puts it out. We'll get into some of that as well. It's good to have you on the show.
0: It is wonderful to be with you, Jeff. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward. We're going to be talking about the patriarchs. And I am really looking forward to it because what we're going to do today is we're going to zoom down into really one big story. And, you know, a lot of people don't, when they think about the Old Testament, a lot of people think, well, in the Old Testament, we have this God who is, is very strong in its judgment and its war and everything else. And then we come to the New Testament and there's Jesus with lambs around his neck. Yes. And he's sitting around in groups of children in the yes. in the you know the flower bed, yeah. you know, that. And, and, and it's really not that true. Right. You know, it's right. that's not the truth. Before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you. For the last 25 years, what At have you been Saint focusing Petrus,
0: on? I've been focusing on Christology. Mm-hmm. For those of that don't know what that yes. is, what is that? It's the doctrine of Jesus Christ, his person and his mission. Mm-hmm. It's it's all about Christ, his person and his mission. I've also taught the Trinity. Uh, and, yeah, I, I love that Uh course we only come to know that god is a trinity of persons by our contemplation of and ever deepening understanding of the person and mission of the son yeah of the father all right who sends the two of them and send their gift of the holy spirit as the fruit of this, this mission of the yeah. Son to the world. No,
1: you, we're going to be talking about, the, yeah. the, about Abraham and Isaac, father-son relationship yes. there. Yes, but uh, You also have been very influenced by a couple of popes recently.
0: Oh, yes. Um, popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been so drawn to them because, in my judgment, Jeff, they have. Such a contemplative approach to their theology, their speech mm-hmm. theology is just speech about God, knowledge of God. And J.P. Two with his Carmelite background, you know John of the Cross, and all. Mm-hmm. Benedict the Sixteenth, such a contemplative man. Whenever I picked up their works, whether it was an essay they wrote, a homily they've given, an encyclical they presented to the Church, mm-hmm. it's suffused with prayer. With let's see, it savors of that that Carmelite charism a bit, and they go deep, yeah, and they talk they about God. It's very reverent. Mm-hmm. It, it's contemplative. It, it stems from love, and it, their writings, draw you right. into this love that they relish and they want you to taste.
1: yeah, and that's a good way that's a yeah. very good way to put it. We're going to be talking about. The Father's love. Yes. And your work has really focused mm-hmm. focused on a particular story in the Old Testament. And uh, and before we get into that, it's important for us to reiterate that in the Old Testament we have the New Testament concealed. It's hidden. Mm-hmm. There's there's things here, there's things mm-hmm. there in Abraham and Isaac mm-hmm. and Jacob, and we read the story, and it can be either a children's story. Or it can be something incredibly deep and filled with the riches Mm -hmm. of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. We won't know until we come to the New Testament. Right. Because the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Yeah. It's revealed. And John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, have assisted you in bringing out this this treasure from the Old Testament. Yes. It's such a beautiful thing. So, in, in a nutshell, What have you been writing about when you talk about atonement, when you talk about the Father's love?
0: If I may, Mm -hmm. I mean, at the risk of seeming self-referential just to start off, I would like to share a a spiritual experience I had that healed the eyes of my heart when it came to seeing the Father in Christ Jesus. Go for it. That'll explain this book. I was um, a junior in college, had the opportunity to to go abroad and do some study there and so on. And during the Christmas break, I had gone on a retreat, a young women's retreat, three days of silence. I don't remember, Jeff, what the retreat master said. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it primed me for what was to happen. What happened occurred after the retreat. Silence was broken. All the young women were ushered into a room no larger than this. And they started chatting. (laughs) And I was sitting on the armrest of uh, a chair in which a newfound friend was was sitting, and she was sharing. And as I turned just simply my, my head to watch her as she spoke, my eyes fell on a crucifix hanging on the opposite wall. And Jeff, I have no idea why it was that moment. As I said, I had gone through Catholic schools all my life. Mm-hmm. In those days, the crucifix was always hanging above the chalkboard before yep. the whiteboard. Yep. But at that moment, borrowing the words of St. Augustine that I now use to describe what happened, the eyes of my heart were healed, and I saw God. And to unpack that just a bit here is I not only saw Jesus, God's beloved Son, crucified, but I saw Him as the revealer of the Father Mm -hmm. for the first time. I really got that. And I went away from this experience, first of all, feeling beloved. Nothing I had done to merit that, nothing I had done to deserve that in advance. I saw the face, the regard of my father. You're beloved. Mm-hmm. And the lengths to which our Trinitarian God went to restore us to him, bring us back to his bosom. We're beloved. Our places next to his heart. Yeah. So thereafter, all my it, it'll explain why I chose the Carmelites, for example, and no other religious community when I entered re- religious life afterward. Those ladies, those Carmelites, they designed a rule of life that draws you in to the mystery of the cross. Everything is designed to enable you, if you wish, to participate in precisely this event, this mystery. Mm -hmm. When I discerned I was meant to teach more, I went in search of knowing Christ and Him crucified, and my studies, then, even my doctoral dissertation, it started as a dissertation on the crucified Christ. And within a year, it went deeper into a dissertation on God the Father and then the Father of Christ crucified. So then I, I go, UD, and uh, everywhere I've gone, <coughs> Jeff, I'm very, very Carmelite. I'm very Marian. I like to say very Joanine too, in that I tend to right away, take my, my place at the foot of the crucifix, the crucified one, with Mary and John's help, by the light of the Holy Spirit, behold the crucified one again. And I tried to draw out and sketch, to use that, or articulate, say something more about the God and Father who's rich in mercy who did not withhold his own beloved son, did not spare his son, but gave him up. So everything I've done, everything I've written, usually, if I write long enough or talk long enough, even if it's primarily focused on the son, I won't stop short of moving on (laughs) to and let Christ's mission of revealing the Father have its say and will shift the point of a, of reference or shift the spotlight from the son to the father right. we came to reveal and yeah. glorify.
1: I think that's a beautiful insight and not one that people take generally. No. They have a tendency to stop with yeah. with the son yeah. or uh, well, there's three things. One is the Father is a bit of a mystery <laughs> to yeah. people.
0: No one has ever seen God, the Father. Right, right, yeah.
1: right. And the Son, uh, Paul said that Jesus is the one intercessor between God and man, the man, Christ yes. Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's a whole other thing. And so people have a hard time yeah. understanding it. And I like what you're doing but because you're saying that if you, if you see Jesus, you cannot help but see the Father. Right. Because Jesus said... I have revealed the Father. Yes, have you? You know, yes. have revealed the Father to you. And we're gonna yes. we're gonna get that. Let's let's in, kind of give a synopsis of this uh, patriarchal period and what okay. we're going to be talking about. Okay. We have Abraham, mm-hmm. and this is in Genesis, the end of Genesis, chapter eleven, and he's in a country called uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, and that's modern day Iraq. Okay, and so we have Abraham at uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God's going to speak to him, and he is going to come. Uh, from Ur, he's going to travel 600 miles northwest to Haran, then 400 miles south to the Promised Land, right, right there. And and something is going to him, ha- happen to him, and with him shortly after he arrives. That's going to involve his son, yeah. Isaac. And we're yes. going to look at that. Yes. Something's going to happen that is yes. not uncommon in Canaan, but very uncommon. From where he came from and that's child sacrifice and there's so much that we're going to we're going to glean from this discussion yes. in that area and then after that you have i you have isaac then you have jacob and then you have joseph so i just want to set yeah. the stage there that abraham has come from a place where there is not child sacrifice over there and he's going to come into the land of canaan and god is going to ask him to do something extraordinary, extraordinary, yeah. and that is yes. to take your son, your only son, yes. Isaac, bring him to Mount Moriah, which later will be the place where the temple's going to be built. Very cool. If you see pictures of Israel mm-hmm. today in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. that's the Golden Dome of the Rock. Mm-hmm. And and he's going to ask him to sacrifice his son and something's going to happen. That's what I want to want to yeah. talk about. Yeah. Uh, talk about there. Let's zoom in okay. and talk about the love of the Father. Okay. Uh, we know from the New Testament perspective, but what do you see in that binding of Isaac that really reveals the Father?
0: All right. When I pick up anything in Scripture, uh, I I'm I'm looking for the ultimate source, the ultimate heart of all reality, which is is the Father. Mm-hmm. So I open Genesis 22, start with verses 1 and 2, and there I watch, what is our Lord doing? No, he, it says he tested. He's going to put Abraham to the test.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And then I watch God's, I watch, there's the visual imagery. I watch his first move. Take your son, your only one, sometimes translated, like in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew. Your beloved one, your only one, your beloved one, your favored one, the one whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land, da, da, da. And I pause there, and I know everything that, that God does is meaningful, it's purposeful. Why is he leading like this? This is how he he begins the testing. Abraham, take your son, your only, your beloved son, the son whom you love, Isaac. And Jeff, to me, I'm thinking, he's actually leading Abraham toward a heightened consciousness of his fatherly love. He's hes actually, and even for the readership here, he's shifting the spotlight to Abraham's heart. And it's a heart of a father.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Given, given these leading designations of, of what's to be sacrificed, the object of sacrifice, your son, your beloved, the one whom you love. Huh. Fatherly love is at, at a heightened pitch. Mm-hmm. That's significant, it seems to me. Obviously, God is, is not preparing Abraham to, be, to accomplish a sacrifice with a calloused heart. Abraham is not being asked to grow calloused, to withdraw, lessen, stifle his fatherly love. Quite the opposite. What's about to unfold and God is prepping Abraham to, with a fatherly heart, fully alive with love, accomplish this. I'm getting sure I'm sorry. accomplish this. Mm. Then I think, I stop at the word test. Now, you know the Bible. I'm granting better than I do. But I know at least this much, Jeff, that in the Bible, oftentimes a test is, a situation, an event, in which the inmost character is disclosed, the heart. Mm-hmm. Typically that's how the, the Bible just sums up. The heart is laid bare. So here's God leading off. Abraham is put it will be put to a test. A test always involves the heart. It'll be laid bare, it'll be disclosed. I'd like to think. Okay, mm-hmm. this is revelatory, sacrificial, yes, but revelatory too, and the heart that's about to be disclosed is a fatherly one. We're told in verse two, with fatherly love, at its height.
1: Does that make sense? It does, it does. I see two hearts coming together. I see, I see the that God is, the heart of our heavenly Father, is being projected here yeah. and on on Abraham. And Abraham is, is, is called on to have that heart. Yes. To have the heart. So you have yes. the heart of God and the heart of Abraham coming together. Yes. And there's Isaac. Yes. You know, there's a son.
0: Yes. I, when, as I, and I thank you for your invitation to come here today and talk about God with you. It, it, with respect to this uh, passage, because I've revisited it and I've seen more. Mm -hmm. And I'm in awe of what is there to find. And I see God is in doing this to Abraham. People say, well, why did he ask such a thing of, of Abraham? Why this test? When we know, after all, that God isn't going to allow him in the end to offer his beloved son up as a burnt offering. He's going to intervene. Yeah,
1: the language the, almost says that, doesn't we're it? We're going to return. Yes. You
0: know? But so why then? Well, I thought, and I, again, I'm thinking, here's a father. And what does a father do? Well, he fathers. I love that verb. He fathers. And he fathers a living image of his own manner of loving. He's He's involved in formation. A father's mm-hmm. role is as he's the primary formator. Love it. Yep. He's a, and Jeff, I, I, I gain this perspective, and I've come to appreciate it more because of my work in a seminary. The professors are, we're formators. We're not merely in academics. Right. We're formators. So here is God saying, I, I'm asking this of you. I'm heightening your consciousness of your fatherly love. You're, you're about to, I'm putting you through an, an exor- a dramatic exercise that involves your fatherly heart, your fatherly love at its pitch. Now, I'm doing this because I am leading you to become ever more like myself. And isn't that the ultimate vocation of mm-hmm. everyone? And certainly Abraham. Were made in the image of God to be ever more like Him. Yeah, this is God isn't being mean. This is a privileged moment for Abraham. He's he's kind of going first. This is how God leads those He calls to an ever closer likeness to Himself, mm-hmm. and He's leading that him to okay, fatherly heart at fever pitch. Your fatherly love. It's not meant to be lessened it's not meant to be withdrawn it's meant to be sacrificed
1: mm-hmm. wow. and if
0: you follow me in this abraham you will be my type the closest type in the bible so far in this, this story of salvation mm-hmm. so that god can point to abram say i am by this test i'm laying bare this man's heart and it's the first time in the Bible you're seeing a heart closer to my own. Wow! But I have to—he is like he's fathering Abraham's fatherhood. Does that make
1: sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. He, no, I, I love it. There's a, there's a question I have for you on that, and in order to ask it, I want to I want to kind of set the historical yes background that. Where Abraham comes from, there isn't child sacrifice. He comes to a place in Canaan where there is child sacrifice of all kinds. Hideous, uh, putting children into the hands of Moloch, you know, and and sacrificing children. There was a common belief in that land that, that Abram has now come to, as we know as Israel today, the land of Canaan, 50 miles wide, 150 miles long, that if you sacrificed your firstborn, If you sacrifice your firstborn, you are saying to God that I am looking to you and God now is going to make you fruitful. This is a lie, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that if I give my child and sacrifice my child, I will be fruitful and good crops and I'll have a great future. I'll have a great future, but I can only have a great future if I sacrifice my first child. And so in a way, Abraham has come to this place where he looks around and says, these people are different. And and it's almost like God is saying, try it. And takes his son. We call it the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, And he brings him to Moriah. He brings all the wood and everything. He gets ready to sacrifice him. And God says, no. Yeah. Now I know yeah. that you trust yes. me. And they hear a, a sacrifice, a ram yes. in the thicket that yes. God has provided there. And I think it's so beautiful because... Abram realized what was happening there as his heart was obedient yes. and he would do it. But suddenly he yes. realizes, God will provide, the Father provides the Father and provide. he names the place Yahweh Yireh, yes. Jehovah Jireh, yes. the Lord will provide. And just a side note on that, for young women and men who find themselves pregnant and they think their future is shot, your future is not shot. You know Why? Because God will provide. That's what the Father does. Yes. The Father provides, and I think that that is so beautiful. Talk about that for a little bit. That that the Father provides, and Abram comes to that point where he's obedient, and God gives a revelation at that point.
0: Well, I'm. I may not be offering or responding. To your prompt with what you're looking for, because I fast forwarded to the New Testament.
1: Okay. Because
0: what is God going to provide? Yeah, go ahead. Finally, is is of course His own beloved Son. Right. And I'm mindful of Romans, you know, verse uh, chapter eight, verse thirty-two, where Saint Paul is is he harkens back to this episode, and he, yet he's talking to. The Christians in Rome, and he's saying he wants them to come, he's trying to heal the eyes of their hearts so that they see God and primarily as Father and see mm-hmm. Him rightly. He says, This God did not withhold His own Son, Agapitos, His beloved Son,
1: mm-hmm.
0: did not withhold Him, echoing, actually alluding to Genesis 22, verse 2 and verses 12. And verses 16, mm-hmm. you didn't withhold your beloved son. You didn't withhold your beloved son. Well, God himself, at the culmination of salvation history, is the one who steps forward and doesn't withhold his beloved son, but gives him for us, for us all. And then Paul adds a comment, and then you see, won't He won't hold back anything else from us. Mm -hmm. This father, with such such selfless generosity, look at his paternal heart, the paternal heart. It is selflessly generous. It is sacrificial in its own fatherly fashion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sacrifices first. There is nothing we need, nothing that's good that he doesn't provide. And quite frankly, in advance of us, because he provided his son while we were yet sinners. Right. Now, this is elsewhere that's in a, that's Romans. That's the miracle of it all. Yeah, in 5.8. While we were yet sinners, God gave us his son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there's a whole lot there. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I go back and forth no, you from Genesis to, 22 yeah. to, to the New Testament.
1: Yeah, the fulfillment. This is how we learn. This is yeah. how we see the we see the, the fulfillment of it. I'm curious, you know, when, when you look at that, what's called in academics, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac there. A young man that's watching the show right now, a young father that's watching the show right now, a, a priest in a, in a parish, what would you say to them about that binding of Isaac as a young father, as a priest, and say, look, I want you to see something here?
0: What I would suggest they see is this, this pattern wherein God, notice, God is intent on fathering them. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He's regarding them in the first place as his beloved son. But a beloved son is fathered, is formed by God the Father to be his living image, his reflection in this world. John the evangelist, So in his prologue to his gospel, as well as in his epistle, he says this twice over, no one has ever seen God the Father, but he, God, fathers filial images to lift them up to the world saying, you will come to know me, see me, love me, finally, in and through my living icons, Mm -hmm. my beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all who are born by grace as sons in the Son, sons and daughters in the Son let no god wants to father you he fathers you. he fathers you in such a way that he's forming you to be his living image
1: mm-hmm.
0: and what he's showing you at the outset is this will involve sacrificial love
1: right right
0: it, it will this 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 isn't sentimental love this this isn't an easy rose-colored kind of pastel colored uh, scene that God is painting for us. Okay. This is a love that takes. Oh, this is what I want to do. Let me let me run to Pope Benedict right now because run. what Pope Benedict <laughs> does, he himself emphasizes this early on in his vocation as a theologian when he's merely a cardinal, but prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he's going to return to it, Jeff in his encyclicals and indeed his his final or near final Wednesday audience as Pope and so on he goes back time and again to talk about God the Father Almighty and watch how he what he wants us to see about God's way the Father's way of being almighty of being all powerful. He shows his power, this Father, in the ability to love sacrificially. Mm -hmm. That's how true power is exercised, and that's where it's authentically seen. So I'd say to these young men, you're called on a path towards sacrifice. And the power that you know, the strength that you're called to exhibit, it's the power of love. And sacrificial love.
1: Yeah, beautiful. You know, when we look at the we look at the Catholic teaching about the Trinity, we see that uh, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a family. It's not a you know, uh, it's not singles, but it's one. It's a family. And we we don't say that God the Father is like a father. We don't say that he's similar to a father. We don't say that he he echoes images of a father. He is Father. Yes. And you cannot put another name on no. it. He is That's who he father. is. Father. Yes. But yet today in the world I see attempts to almost no. strip God of fatherhood no. and make him more of a uh, he's just God. No. You know, it's, it's yeah. just God and we lose the we lose the the fatherhood we aspect of it.
0: Which which actually is his very essence. It's his way of being Trinity, excuse me, I teach Trinity. The Trinity, each person of the Trinity is a distinct, so unrepeatable, a unique, distinct way of being God mm-hmm. and acting divinely. And the first person in God is this and only this way of being divine, and it's the paternal way, mm-hmm. it's the fatherly way. He he selflessly communicates, he gives the fullness of divinity and generates a son. That's God from God, true God from true God. God, the Father, hoards nothing, keeps nothing of what it means to be God to himself,
1: right, but right. gives it all. That, you know, that's interesting because at the very beginning of the Bible, At the very beginning of the Bible, God said, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it you'll die. The enemy comes in in chapter 3 and basically is suggesting he's not telling you everything. He's not disclosing everything. He's keeping stuff from you, and you have to go after it yourself. Yes. This God can't be
0: trusted. His fatherly heart, this is basically kind of like an abusive father. He's jealous of his own divinity. Mm -hmm. What a lie now that we know of the Trinity, That actually God from eternity doesn't clutch the divinity to himself, but communicates it such that he begets a consubstantial son, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, because the Father gives Uh his divinity away to the Son, and that we're created only to be Deified in the image Difference. and likeness exactly
1: of God, and then when we talk about the Blessed Mother, sometimes people say, "Well, don't put make attention, you know, don't give attention to the Blessed Mother. It, God will get jealous because He only has so much <sighs> to give." And, and
0: when I get, I look at Satan's first move. When you you asked me to talk a little bit about Genesis twenty-two, I watched God's first move. What's Satan's first move? Is he approaches the woman. And to my mind, he's asking her, he wants her to entertain a distorted image of God's fatherly heart.
1: Oh, that's good. Say that again. Say that again. This, is, really what he,
0: this is what he's after. He, he, he lies. But he, what's his goal? He wants her to entertain a distorted, that's why he's, decept- he's the deceiver, he's the liar about God, to entertain a distorted, deformed image of God's fatherly heart. Once it's in her mind and she entertains it, that, that's why Augustine will say later, St. Augustine, our one task in life is to heal the eyes of our hearts so that we finally see God rightly and truly. So her mind goes, begins to be deceived. And you're right, she and, and her husband, Adam, not trusting in God, they can justify, well, okay, if we now no longer see him as this, this good, selflessly generous right, right. F- fatherly heart, yeah. we're going to determine good and evil for ourselves. We'll reach for the fruit. Yeah. So they end up, okay, estrangement, blah, blah, blah. Thereafter, though, what's one of the consequences of original sin, even their originals? This This blindness, our, the struggle we have as human beings from the outset, To see God rightly, to see His fatherly heart as it truly is, so then I fast forward to salvation history, and I, no wonder one of God's initial moves with Abraham is, I got to father this guy, I've got to refashion, in in creaturely terms, a living image of myself, a fatherly heart that I can point to and say, all your point to but what this this forming of a of the a truer image of the fatherly heart well it's an awesome it's an awesome mission because god's fatherly heart will overflowing with selfless love be willing to sacrifice give his beloved son for the redemption of the world that's what the father is willing to do from the get-go. Yeah, from the get-go. And so he starts forming Abraham as his tie. That's
1: beautiful.: if- No, that's, re- that's really beautiful. I appreciate you sharing that. I do have a question for you that a lot of people don't talk about, okay? We have uh, God, the Father, is telling Abraham to bind up Isaac and to sacrifice Isaac. And we hear a lot about it from... It must have been hard from Abraham's perspective. That must have been difficult. And even wondering, am I crazy? What's going on here? But let's look for a moment at it from Isaac's perspective. This isn't a two-year-old. No. Look at it from Isaac's perspective. What in the world is he thinking?
0: I know. Now, uh, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, Mm -hmm. but I... sit at the feet of of some people who are are, are worthy of my time and attention and so I turn to some of the church fathers and so on and even some of, of the rabbis over the course of Jewish tradition and what they'll point to increasingly is that no he was no he was no infant Isaac he was a boy in fact the Jewish tradition usually Depicts him, you know, better than I. Depicts him as as a young man. Yeah. Some uh, some Jewish literature has him at fifteen, others at twenty six, others at thirty seven years of age. He's a young man. And so some say, all right, when he asks after three days of trekking with his his father in the wilderness, and he, he's no dolt to be sure. When he asks father, there is the fire, there's the, where is the sheep? Is he, and this is said as a question, because we don't right. truly, fully know, but is the son in his own way signaling to his father? And I love the way they speak to each other, my father and my son. This whole drama is, it plays out between two hearts the heart of a Father and the heart of the Son. This is an interplay of love, as is the, the cross event. It's an interplay of love between the Father and the Son, hearts bound together by the Holy Spirit. But back to this episode. So is, is the young Isaac saying, signaling to his dad, I recognize there is no sheep.
1: <laughs>
0: I accept there is no sheep. Is it Isaac's way of saying, "I'm with you on this," and I will continue as Scripture says, walking such that the two of us went on, the two of them go on together, or in the Hebrew it actually is it says as one, as one. Is Isaac trying to signal to his dad, "I do know," or at least, like you, I'm. I'm in suspense, and I am willing to continue traveling with you, walking together as one with you in obedience to the Lord's command, like father, like son. Mm-hmm. And what I would want to add here, and and yes, I know this is from meditation on the scripture. I'm not pointing to a specific word to proof this, sure. but... When I look at how our Lord Jesus, how he related to his dad, his father, it was always, he says, I do nothing of myself. Mm-hmm. I only do what I see the father doing. Whatever the father does, I do likewise, because the father loves. This is John five nineteen and 20, because the father loves the son. This is what the father does is love and love in, in, in paternal fashion because the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that He Himself does. Alright, so what's going on here in, in John 5, 19, 20? This is This is how God fathers His filial image. He shows the Son, discloses His paternal heart filled with love, and that spurs the Son, prompts the Son, engenders in the Son this willingness to love likewise in imitation of the Father. I suspect that what plays out later in, this, in the mission of Christ that culminates in the cross event is playing out in miniature, as in a prefigurement, in episode here, Genesis 22, and that Abraham's heart, remember he's undergoing a test, a heart is to be disclosed, it's to be laid bare, is Isaac seeing the heart of his dad mm-hmm. The father is in his own fashion. I'm sorry, I'm getting quiet, but he's showing him paternal love that's sacrificial, that's willing to sacrifice, what's most precious to him. Hmm. And is Isaac in tune with that, as a son ought to be, paternal love speaking to filial love, shaping filial love to mirror it, to do likewise? Yeah. So is this, is this what's going on there so that Isaac willingly, he doesn't have to tell his dad, I'll walk with you.
1: Yeah, I think that Isaac, you know, you, you he had to have sensed the angst yeah. of his father. He had to have, have, have sensed that in the same way that I would think that Jesus was in tune on the cross with the angst of the father, that yeah. this was, he knew the father was going through this. Yes. It wasn't just, look at me, look yes. at me. But he was aware of that, yes. of that sacrifice. And so in the Akedah, or Isaiah, uh, Genesis 22, you have... You have one son trusting a father who a father is trusting a father. You yes. have a double trust going yes. on here.
0: Yes. And I know in, in listening to you, I want to go back to Pope Benedict. I forgot to actually read to you uh, some passages from Pope Benedict where he he pauses himself and offers some beautiful reflections mm-hmm. on the heart of God the Father as he... Is with his son in this event of the cross, mm-hmm. in this sacrificial event. The father is near.
1: So, what is Benedict?
0: So, here's what Benedict say says. This. Boom. Benedict has us to say, Jeff, it's in Benedict's last public interview before his death. And you can find it in the, the new volume put out by Ignatius Press is his last writings. Benedict is being interviewed by Father Jacques Survey. and he says this. In some parts of Germany, there was a very moving devotion to an image representing the suffering father, who, as father, shares inwardly the sufferings of the son, and also the image of the throne of grace is part of this devotion and now he begins to describe it the father supports the cross and the crucified you've you've seen images of, of this the father is rather like my the image on my book cover the father there is supports the Son on the cross bends lovingly over him and the two are, as it were, together on the cross. An allusion to the two times in this episode where the narrator says, and the two are as one. The two walk together. He goes on. So in a grand and pure way, here, One perceives, again, I love this contemplative bent of Benedict, that we perceive finally what God's mercy means. And we might even say what it costs God's own fatherly heart. What the participation of God, the engagement of God in man's suffering means. It's not, on the Father's part, not a matter of a cruel justice, not a matter of the Father's fanaticism but rather of this work, the true overcoming of evil. It's a serious work. It's an earnest work, the overcoming of evil, but that ultimately can be realized only in the suffering of love. The suffering of love. End of quote. Now, Benedict will make this claim time and again whenever he is contemplating the cross event, Trying to shed light on the mystery of atonement, is going to say evil is eliminated, evil is overcome, only in and through the suffering of love. But you see, the suffering is no passive, you know, being done to. It's a capacity of love that proves its almightiness the capacity of God as father in paternal fashion and in, as son in filial fashion and in human terms to bear evil and endure it out of love and with love and thereby overcome it. So getting back to your other remark about what do you tell young men who with all their virility Mm-hmm. Want to be sons in the Son? Want to be a father like God is father? It's your love that He wants to empower, and it will be a love He'll ask you to, such that it'll know no bounds. Mm-hmm. There'll be no limits to what He's going to ask of you, and He's going to point to what God Himself did—that He gave, He did not withhold His beloved Son, alluding to Genesis twenty-two. Did bump. And then he goes on, the omnipotence of love, the almightiness of love, is not that of the power of the world, but that of total giving. Yeah, that's beautiful. So there is father and son walking together as one.
1: Just like Abraham and
0: Isaac. Like Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. Willing to give all. And what was most precious to them? The father giving his son the son letting go of his father yeah. and all for us that we might be drawn in to this relation of love between father and son that is our christian
1: yeah God. and i love it because that you know that the, the catechism even talks about this in the very first paragraph of the catechism that that ultimately you know we're lost and the father goes in looking for us yes and in through the sacrifice of his son he gathers us together and into the family the church and it's it's divinization he wants us to partake of the the trinity's nature and the love of the trinity and in order for us to to come to a place where we can where we can experience it it cost him dearly for our ticket to get in yes and he's asking us to live this way now yes
0: you know as i listen to you jeff what comes to my mind now again i teach in the seminary so most of my students are, are ordained as priests. And we're trying to form them first, make them conscious that they're beloved sons. Mm-hmm. They need to know that first in order to be a father figure, a type of the, of the father when right. they say, okay, a, a spiritual father of a parish. During their ordination, the, the part that I always just it's when they hit the marble, we call it. Mm-hmm. They, they just prostrate right on the ground. And there's that prayer. And to my mind it's what okay in the freeze frame this is what fatherhood looks like when you're asking how yeah. do i give how do i express all my power all my aspirations <laughs> you give it all lay it down in this symbolic gesture yeah but then you got to get up and for the next 10 20 30 years you live that out
1: so even in the the charging of uh, going out and the evangelization as the yes. father sent me. Now yes. I'm now I'm sending I'm sending you. So everybody today in evangelization is really taking the heart of the Father yes. with them. So we're gonna take a break when we come back, find out a little bit more about Dr. Margaret Turek and her own Bible study, and then we'll we'll get to your questions. We'll be right back. The old testament makes up over half of the Bible, and yet it can be very difficult to understand. I'm Andrew Swafford, And I'm Jeff Cavins. And we, along with a couple of our fellow Bible scholars, wrote a Catholic Guide to the Old Testament just for that purpose. Through a Catholic Guide to the Old Testament, you will become better acquainted with the author, main characters, important points of each book of the Old Testament to bring more clarity to the Old Testament. And it even uses the color-coded Bible Timeline Learning System which is also used for the Bible in a year, podcast with Father Mike Schmitz and myself. And one great thing about this book is not only does it take you to the there and then, it also shows you how the New Testament uses each book of the Old Testament and how each book of the Old Testament is used in Catholic tradition. Understanding each of the individual books of the Old Testament will help you possess a deeper knowledge of the Bible and a greater view of the big picture of God's plan of salvation, which ultimately brings you closer to God. You can order today at ascensionpress.com slash oldtestament. Well, you painted quite a picture of God the Father here for us today, and we're very grateful for that. Some really, some beautiful insights that I haven't thought of that have been a benefit just listening to you. So we want to know, by the way, nice Bible. I know. We. Did it all come from there? <laughs> we we, we want to <laughs> yes. know. We want to know. Um, what, how do you go about the Bible reading and study in your own life? Give us a little tour of that.:
0: I'll, I'll be brief, but it, go, it does go back to my time with the Carmelites. Our rule of life was such that half hour in the morning um, and a half hour in late afternoon, we uh, went before the Blessed Sacrament and we meditated on sacred scripture. And so for six years, that was like my rhythm of life. Now, I was with the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles, so they were also teaching. So it would be like in the morning, I'd be meditating on Scripture. I'd be sent out to teach high school at that time, Sister Peter Therese, if any of my former students are out there. And so you could give all that that you, your own heart fed on in the yeah. morning. Give it out. Come back. The doors would close. The gates would close behind me. Live the Theresian rule again. Had another half hour of meditation on Scripture, and that was the rhythm of my life for yeah. six years. So thereafter, while I don't live the same rule, obviously, I still um, take time, usually in the mornings, and often nowadays with the day, the mass, the daily mass readings.
1: Yeah. That's Pray over do.
0: those so that I can enter into the celebration of yeah. daily mass. You're,
1: yeah. with, you're with the church. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Do you mark your Bible? Do you, I do. Do, do you really?
0: This. I do. Now, that's because I'm, you see, I'm also a teacher. Yeah. And so it's like the inhale, exhale. I take it all. And when I feel God is saying something or I see something, I will mark to say, I've got to come back to that. And then I bring it, I bring it so to others. So the notes help I, you. Yes. If
1: you're teaching. Or... Yes.
0: So I, I do. I'll circle things or like all these. I've got post-its everywhere. The blue have to do with the revelation of the Father's heart in the Old Testament, the green and the new. I've got, I come up with my own
1: codes. That's if I... wonderful. If you were to say, OK, um, of all the people in the Bible, who do you think you, who, 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 who do you think that you're most in tuned with? in the Bible, uh, of all of the people. You're, you're interested, you're fascinated that that's me, you know.
0: Jeff, that's changed, and it's it's kind of paradoxical. When I was younger, in the, like, my convent years, it was St. Peter. Um, though It was St. Peter. My older years, it's St. John. Now, I say it's paradoxical because Peter traditionally is understood to be older than John. But I, when I was younger, related to Peter. Now that I'm older, I relate more to John. Why Peter? Because and I was Peter Therese in the convent. That yeah. was my religious name. Um, because Peter was ah, oh, he did love the Lord, but so impulsive, you know. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, yeah. and he's not even reckoning with what's going on here. If it's you, call me, and I'm on it. Yeah. And he leaps. <laughs> I'll die for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> but then he's he's he figures out the wind then picks up, and he's he's getting some backwind, and he's wondering. <laughs> Um, and he starts to sink, and he starts being concerned about himself, and realizing I can't do this of myself. I'm being asked to do something, well beyond my, my own mm-hmm. powers, and he's he he gets scared and starts sinking, yeah. and then the hand say, but at least he says, "Save me," and the hand is there and pulls him out. So I used to, especially when I was younger, in particular, uh, very much relate to to Peter, always wanting to be near our Lord. Yet, finding myself and following Him, sometimes in in situations where what comes immediately to mind is this is well beyond my own capacities. But then in the next breath, Lord, help, save me. But as I grew older, it's the younger John. It's the one that rests on the Lord's heart. Um, You know at the Last Supper, that beloved disciple just rests on the Lord's heart, and then given my tendency to always situate our Lord in relation to his Father. Well, John's prologue has, in the beginning was the Word and the Word himself was turned toward, was with God, with the God, with the Father, kind of turned toward the Father and was God. And then you go down to verse 18 of that prologue, the final verse, and it says, no one has ever seen God the Father. It's the only Son Closest to the Father's heart. I'm leaning back. Like He's, he's the one. As God and as man. He's yeah. closest to the Father's heart. Turn toward the Father.
1: <laughs> you know? It's a beautiful picture of the, the Last Supper. A lot of people you get the idea of the Da Vinci or, you know, picture, which is not true. It's not one long table. But it was a triclinium. It was a U-shaped table. And where the Lord was sitting... They lean to the side to eat with the right hand. They're leaning. The one to his right is leaning into him. That's John. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a part of the, if you, if you, take a, if you were to take a uh, a U like this, yeah like that, Jesus is here. John's here. Peter's over here in the privileged place. And next to Jesus on this side is Judas.
0: You've got to take me to the Holy Land at some point.
1: Yeah, I've A little, never been. Yeah, I would love to do that sometime. But I do love the image of your, yes. you hear the heartbeat yes. of him. How about verses of the Bible? Any any favorites?
0: One of my favorites is it's the Christological hymn in Philippians, chapter two, verses six through eight. But it, I should start with verse five. Let <laughs> let your mind let the mind that is in Christ Jesus be in you. Mm-hmm. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and yeah. took the form. That one, obedient unto death on a cross, and because of that, God highly because of that, God highly exalted him. And then you go, no, 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 no. But then the very last line is, and all of this is to the glory of God the Father, because Christ is—he's mirroring. Remember, he does only what he sees the Father doing. Right. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So there's something about the Father's initial way of loving in the Godhead. This this generosity, this giving away, this relinquishing all, that there be a beloved son, another way of being God. Yeah. Uh, that this son mirrors, that he's reflecting in his own mission from the father's heart. And so all of this is to the glory of God the Father. And
1: Dr. Turek, you are going to have fun in heaven. I know, <laughs> you if, if I may. <laughs> Gonna... If I behave <laughs> <laughs> we have some questions that we have for uh, the show today and we're gonna we're jumping these together okay see what see what we can come up with uh, Lucas asks the question when Joseph tells his brothers about his dreams does he know what they mean to me it seems arrogant if he knew Uh, what his dreams meant, or naïve if he didn't know what they meant. I've always been confused by how he shares his dreams with his brothers.
0: Okay, the little I know of this is many, many commentators will will say he was being initially arrogant, and his heart, filial heart, needed to be purified. Mm -hmm. He was a beloved son, the favored son of his father, Jacob, uh, but his own heart needed to be purified, and like Philippians 2, but Christ, it's, it's not a purifying move on the Son's, Jesus, Christ's part. But for, for Joseph, did he need to go through sort of three stages of descent where his heart becomes increasingly purified, humbled, etc., cetera, before he's lifted up and now is a, a living filial image of? Could be, I've read that, Jeff. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with myself. I'll end with you for myself. When I've read this before, I just thought I didn't see him as arrogant. I saw him more as kind of like Nathaniel among the apostles, where in him there is no Mm -hmm. guile, and that he he knows this is a this is a sacred message. And he might be becoming in, uh, aware of God is speaking to him through his dreams. And here I'm just piecing things together, Jeff, but isn't the prophet with their gifts, aren't they also given a sense of responsibility that sure. they must say what they've seen or heard? And unless they say it, it won't come to pass. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that the utterance is important. I'm just... Playing with this right now, but I wonder maybe it wasn't arrogance, maybe it's this sense of responsibility he had at the sake at the divine source of this dream and and began t- to share, communicate what he saw mm-hmm. without without Eric arrogance being involved. But I don't know.
1: Well, I would say that I would say that. Um, it's kind of somewhere in between for me in that uh, there's some history behind this. There's some history behind uh, sharing this about the dreams in that his father loved him very much. He's a favorite. He's a favorite son. It's evidenced by the, the colorful coat he has. He has a special coat of many colors that signifies his father's love and, uh, and you know, care. And so the other brothers, know they know this. Okay. now. Now, his father, Jacob, sends his son, Joseph, to give them supplies. I don't think that he would have sent him if he would have felt that these brothers might kill him yeah. or something. Yeah. I think this was pent up in their, in their heart. And he may have shared it you know, from the standpoint of this, like Nathaniel, sort of a naive, maybe a little uh, no guile, but at the same time, maybe as a brother of kind of... You know, and I, I've had these dreams, you know, and yeah, and yeah, whatever's yeah. going on in their heart is boiling at this yeah, point, And yeah, they uh, they want yeah. to kill him. And so they say, well, let's kill him. And Reuben says, no, no, we're not going to kill him. Let's dig a pit and put him in it and pray about it. You know, and and then it's Judah, the fourth, the one that Jesus comes from that line. It's Judah that sells him into bondage with the the Ishmaelites who are coming or going by. And it's Judah who ultimately is transformed yeah. in the story and he is willing to offer himself
0: yeah. Wow well, notice yeah love mature love in the yeah. Bible it's sacrificial
1: it's sacrificial yeah. I knew you were going to get around to that I wow. knew it <laughs> uh, Do we see Jacob face uh, any sort of punishment from God for conceiving children with his wives maids It just doesn't seem right. Well, there's a good question. That's why. So,
0: Jeff, what would you say to that?
1: Are you hosting this show now?
0: I am right now. I'm
1: (laughs) taking over. Okay. So, what I would say uh, on that is that you have when when Jacob when Jacob comes on the scene and he has his eyes are set. His eyes are set on on Rachel. Jacob wants to... I mean, he's. she's got beautiful eyes. He wants to marry her. You have to remember what happened prior to this with Jacob and his father, Isaac. Jacob ended up with the birthright, yeah. which means that he gets a double portion. It means he's also going to be the lead in the future. He also got the blessing of Esau, his brother, who is the firstborn. And so there's a swap there. There's a switch. And Rebekah, his mother knows that, that he really is the leader. In fact, it was prophesied that the younger would lead the, the older, that Jacob would lead. So he gets the birthright. He, he receives it because Esau says, uh, I don't, I, I'm just famished. Give me some of that, that Hormel chili there. You know. And so, so he says, well, give me your birthright. Fine, I don't need it anyway. He gets the birthright, but then it's when he gets the blessing. He's sneaky. And Rebekah's oh, in on it. Yeah. And they get the food and prepared. He gets the blessing from his father. Then Esau comes in and says, oh, I'm here, dad. And his dad says, wait a minute, I've already given that away. That causes trouble. That causes trouble. And most of the time when people ask this question, they're asking, aren't there any consequences to him getting the blessing that way? And the answer is, yes, there is. But in Hebrew writing, they don't tell you, they show you. They don't tell you the answer. They don't tell you the punishment. They don't tell you the results. They, they show you the results. So what do we have? Well, Esau catches wind of this, and he wants to kill Jacob. Jacob goes all the way back up north to Haran, 400 miles. That's where he meets Rachel, falls in love, and he's going to work seven years for her. The wedding comes about, and there's some wine, I'm sure, and a lot of celebration. He wakes up in the morning in the tent with who? Leah. That is Rachel's older sister, and he's like, "Oy they, what's going, what is going on?" He goes to Laban and listen to what Laban says. Listen, Jacob, I don't know how they do that where you're from down south there, but here, the oldest goes first. Oh, he's been Jacob. Yeah, he's been fooled. He's been fooled, and so he ends up with two wives, and uh, the first four are born of Leah, uh, Rachel's older sister, and then. Uh, uh, Rachel can't have children. She has seemed, can't seem to have children. So she gives her handmaid to Jacob and he has a couple children. Then Leah can't have children. And she gives her handmaid to Jacob and he has some children. Then Leah has more children. Then finally the last two are Rachel. Wow. What a mess. And that leads to questions like this. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is to what's the deal what's the deal there. Part of it is understanding the times in which it was written and the importance of having children, the importance of having sons yes. and daughters. This is a hard life. This is a life that's more it's similar to I think a farm life today where you need children, mm-hmm. you know on mm-hmm. on that on that farm. And it wasn't unusual for a person to have multiple wives back in antiquity in the biblical days. Of course this becomes more refined and we know now. We come to the New Testament. A man has one wife, which is the way it was, you know, in the in the beginning. But the punishment we or the 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 uh, uh, the results of this, I think, are seen more in 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 uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah in what happens there. What goes around comes, you know, comes around, goes around, or whatever that, that saying is, is there. But. uh we, it's very interesting study to, to study the, the 12 sons of Jacob based on their, their mothers, because the one, Judah, Judah is the first four are, are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Those are Leah's kids. The tribe of Judah that Jesus comes from wow. is from Leah. Interesting. A lot of people don't get that.
0: I like that phrase, you've been Jacobed.
1: You've been Jacobed. This has been so good it 's been so good to, to talk you. to you. I sure appreciate it i 'd like to to close in in prayer and uh, and just ask the the Lord and ask our Father to reveal himself to people who need that right now in their life and they they are this is what they 're searching for. Shall we pray Yes please. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I thank you for uh, Dr. Margaret Turek. I thank you, Lord, for the the, the study that she's done, the meditating, the, um, uh, the, the going deep into the mystery of the Trinity, the theologizing here that is so fruitful. And Lord, as a result of what's been shared today, I pray that our, our, our wonderful friends watching the show would receive this revelation, receive this truth of the Father and how much the Father loves and how much he wants to share who he is with us. I also pray, Lord, for those that we discussed, the young fathers listening and priests, that they would take this revelation of the, self, the self-giving love of God and uh, take it into their heart and imitate this, become like their heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, for the fruit of this show and and I pray that you will be glorified in all that happens with it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, that you so much. So good.
0: It was a blessing. Good.
1: Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.